Good morning, everyone. Thanks for being here on this kind of gross day outside, um, getting through the rain to be here. Let's start with prayer. God be with you. Let us pray. Merciful God, who sent your messengers, the prophets, to preach repentance and prepare the way for our salvation. Give us grace to heed their warnings and forsake our sins, that we may greet with joy the coming of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. If you've already been to worship this morning, that may sound familiar. That's the collect for the second Sunday in Advent. Typically the second Sunday of Advent, uh, we hear something about John the Baptist, and that is the case today. Um, We hear about him calling out to make way for Jesus. Advent, as you likely know, is a season when we talk a lot about preparation, about getting ourselves ready for Jesus. We have lots of preparation that happens um, in our homes, in this church, uh, hopefully also in our hearts. Often it's easy to get busy with decorating the tree and preparing for class Christmas parties and all those sorts of things, and we forget about the preparing our hearts bit. Um, I I forget as well, I'll be honest. We also hear a lot from our prophets during the season of Advent. The lectionary um, offers us some opportunities to hear what those prophets of old um, said about a coming Messiah. Uh, This year we are hearing a lot from Isaiah during the season of Advent. Um, So all of that adds up to making it an appropriate time to talk about prophets in particular. It's not something that I think we spend a whole lot of time on in the Episcopal Church, but is an important part of our biblical history and of our faith. So today we'll focus on biblical prophets, and then next week we'll talk about modern prophets, uh, who some of those folks are, how we might live prophetic lives. But we'll uh, start way back in the past first. I'll start us with one definition of prophet. This comes from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Um, So it it reads as such, a pretty broad definition that can encompass a number of different uh, roles of a prophet. So one who utters divinely inspired revelations, that might be a definition that resonates with our religious experience. A writer of one of the prophetic books of the Bible, and we'll talk about those many prophetic books in a moment. One gifted with more than ordinary spiritual or moral insight. So those people who are able to speak to a truth um, that we cannot speak to um, per se, or maybe you are one of those who's able to speak uh, to... um, a spiritual or moral insight at a level um, above others. A prophet is also one who foretells future events. Uh, You'll notice, and I'll come back to this in a moment, that that's just one part of the definition. Um, Oftentimes, colloquially, when we talk about prophets, we're really talking about people who can tell about future events, and that's not the only thing that prophets do. When we look to scripture, um, especially when we look to uh, the Hebrew scriptures, it's important that we know our Hebrew to help us know what we are looking for. Um, So I've included for us um, the Hebrew words that when we look to scripture, if you are one who wants to do a search of Hebrew words, there's software that you can do that with. I'll be glad to help you if you are interested. Um, But we can search these keywords to find where prophets are coming up. Sometimes translation limits us. Um, A word that starts as navi, male prophet, uh, neva'ah, Uh, female prophet or nevaim then gets translated a little differently into English, and we might miss um, that cue for us. 
I'll name that both um, the words for male and female prophet are found in the Old Testament, as well as nevaim, which is the plural of prophets. Um, as is the case in many languages, that is a masculine word, um, but a plural that can include uh, prophets of all genders. Um, Nevaim also refers to the section of Hebrew scriptures that includes uh, the prophetic books. Um, So the Hebrew scriptures are made up of the Torah, those first five books, uh, the Nevaim, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings. Um, So this is a, a large section in the library that is the Hebrew scriptures talk for a moment about the roles of prophets, the the work that they do. Uh, There's many jobs, many roles that fall under uh, the category of prophet. And these can also be sort of keys for us when we're reading scripture, that when we hear about one of these actions, we might be hearing about someone who is a prophet or who was a member of a prophetic guild. And sometimes, especially when it comes to women prophets, uh, the word prophet itself might not be used, but these actions might be recorded, and that can be a clue to us as well. So prophets uh, do the work of intercession. They um, offer communication between Yahweh, between God and God's people. They can ask questions of God, um, and folks trust the answers that come from them. Um, And prophets also interpret visions, so that may be a dream, that may be an experience that someone has had of God and is having trouble making sense of. A prophet does that work of intercession um, and making connection with God. Prophets take part in proclamation. They do a lot of proclamation. They proclaim that word of God that they have heard through intercession. They advise monarchs and earthly rulers through that prayer, and they also um, do the archival work of uh, recording those prophetic utterances um, so that that proclamation can continue through time. Prophets are communal, communal rulers in many ways. So as I said, they advise monarchs and earthly rulers, but they also help to rule within their own communities. They teach and lead their own disciples. Uh, Many prophets had a group of disciples that followed their leadership. They construct and guard the temple, take care of that part of their community, and they also resolve disputes. So oftentimes, prophets function as judge, and people will come to them with their various conflicts and ask, okay, well, what what would God say about this? And the prophet has the job of trying to make sense of the components of that conflict um, and where God might come into play in that. Uh, So a a weighty job, as you would imagine. Uh, Prophets also are performers. This is a part of the prophetic ministry that I think is often forgotten. Many prophets offer musical and poetic performances. They, of course, perform miracles, and they also share their visions. Uh, So there's a performance aspect of this where they are sharing something in a way that people can receive it. Uh, So music and poetry has throughout history been a way that we can convey messages that we might not be able to convey in simple conversation. So prophets use that as a means of conveying God's word. Uh, As I mentioned a moment ago, prophets, um, we might find out about them because they're part of a prophetic guild. Prophets didn't really work in isolation for the most part. They were in community with one another um, and had guilds. So that's also where those disciples come into play. There are many prophets of old that we have never heard about who were part of those guilds and part of those communities of prophetic witness. As I named, prophets are not simply fortune tellers. They are not simply predictors of a future. That may be part of what they do, um, but that's not the whole picture. So that's part of what I want us to look at today um, is that broader picture of what it looks like to be a prophet. This is not just about saying, here's an event that's going to happen in the future, here's exactly how it's going to happen, though there is some of that in the prophetic writings, as you well know, um, but there's some other aspects to their ministry as well. What are you curious about so far? I feel like I just threw a lot of information out there. Um, Yeah. 
Yes, I'm, that's what I'm about to do, is get into some individual prophets. Yes. I also have this um, image in my head of um, the reluctant prophet who yes. like, wouldn't be in a guild, I would think, because they're like, no, that's not, no, I, I didn't want to do that. So then where does that fit in? That's a great question. So what do we, what's the reluctant prophet do that might not want to join a guild, um, probably is not stepping out uh, in the front either? Um, I don't know. I, there's not a whole lot of recorded history there, though we do see with the prophets that we hear about, many of them were reluctant too, and it took convincing from God for them to say, okay, I guess I'll do this. I guess I'll, I'll trust that you will give me the words and the wisdom that I need. So I would guess that there were plenty of prophets who were really reluctant, and maybe there were other folks in the guild who said, no, really, God's calling you to this. In the same way that we experience reluctance in our own ministries at times, and it takes the work of the community to say, I promise, I'm, I'm hearing God call you to this as well. Um, but that's a great question. I, and I think we have many reluctant modern prophets too. So maybe we'll get into that a little bit next week too. It's a great question. Yes. Yeah. Either understand ourselves better or understand God better or, or understand a path better. Yes. Uh, yes. 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 Curiosity about, about what this bigger understanding of prophets does for us. Um, I think it will help us to interpret scripture. Um, I think it helps us to notice um, those people who are not named as prophets in particular, um, but who are doing prophetic work, both in scripture and in our world. I think having this broader understanding of what it means to be a prophet will also be helpful when we turn to modern prophets, um, to notice people around us who are doing this ministry and to notice how we ourselves uh, may be stepping into a prophetic life, even in small ways. We don't have to identify ourselves as a prophet uh, to be doing prophetic work. So I'm, I'm hopeful that this will give us a lens that looks at those many ways we can embody it. Yes? There's also the issue of false prophets. There's also the issue of false prophets, indeed. Yes. Yeah, it's always important to watch out for false prophets. Um, both, there's lots to say about that in scripture um, as well as current day. Um, I won't get a whole lot into that today, but it's a good, thing, a good place for reflection to be sure. Let's talk about some of the prophets that are recorded in our scripture. I'm going to go through um, the series of prophetic books and then go into more detail for a few of these. So these are the major prophets. There's five major prophets. Uh, these books are longer. They are broader in scope. Um, partially because of their length, there's a lot of ministry recorded from these prophets um, that covers all sorts of different parts of communal life, life with God. Uh, so we hear Isaiah, we'll talk a little bit more about Isaiah in a moment, so I won't go into that too much. Um, but as I mentioned, we hear a lot from Isaiah in Advent. Um, there's a lot about preparing um, that comes up in Isaiah. Um, there's also plenty about judgment and hope um, that come up that feels really fitting for this season. So we'll get into that in a minute. Jeremiah pronounces judgment on Judah uh, during the Babylonian captivity, um, and he also offers a message of hope and restoration. So part of the job of a prophet is to offer a word of judgment where it is needed, but also to name a hope, that there's a reason that repentance is important, uh, there is a reason that our relationship with God is important, and there is a hope in sight, um, even if it is not within this generation. There is something to look ahead to. Uh, Lamentations is attributed to Jeremiah, and while it's not strictly prophetic, it's counted as one of those major prophetic books, um, and it offers laments of the destruction of Israel. 
Ezekiel offers visions and prophecies, um, some dreams, as well as symbolic actions and some imagery for us to interpret. Daniel uh, does some of the same work, um, offers special narratives um, and visions. There are interpretations of those dreams and visions as well. If you haven't spent time in Daniel, I encourage you to. It's pretty wild, uh, truthfully. There's a lot of imagery in Daniel um, that we might not expect to be in the Bible if we didn't look to those prophetic books. So there's monsters, there's a lot of apocalyptic imagery. Um, it's, it's worth a read. And if you start to read it and wonder, what in the world is this? Why did Adeline tell me to look at this? Let's talk about it. Let's interpret it together. Um, that's one of the challenges of prophetic work is that it does require some work on our part. Um, it's not necessarily an easy read in that it re- does require interpretation and curiosity. There are 12 minor prophets, um, and I'll say just a bit about each of them, um, but these are shorter books. They offer a look at more specific topics, oftentimes focusing in on just one thing. Um, Hosea is an interesting one. Um, He uses his own relationship with his wife, Gomer, as an illustration for the life of Israel. So Gomer is named as a harlot, as is Israel, Um, but in his relationship, Hosea um, names that Gomer comes back from that life of being a harlot and becomes a faithful wife. That's possible for Israel too. Um, Israel has been acting up um, and acting out of outside of the covenant with God, but it is possible that Israel can again be faithful. Um, Harlot is not the language that I would use today. I don't think that that's helpful language in our context, um, but is exactly what is used in scripture um, to talk about that possible repair in relationship. Uh, Joel talks about how a return to God, a repentance from God, will result in divine favor and in fertile land. So you can see how um, these prophetic messages also have a really practical lens, especially when you're talking about folks who are in exile, who are experiencing captivity, um, who are experiencing constant war, uh, who are really dependent on their own farming, the farming of their small communities. They couldn't ship it from who knows where as we do today. Um, So that fertile land is a really important part of the message they're receiving there. Um, Amos offers some particular judgment uh, to the rich and self-indulgent, to oppressors, to those who um, condemn um, or offer uh, perversions of justice. Amos offers uh, punishment for the wicked and renewal for the righteous. Obadiah is the shortest book in the Bible. It's only 21 verses, one single chapter. So as I said, these minor prophets, short books, uh, smaller scope, um, and that's certainly true there. We have Jonah, a story that I think we all know well. Jonah is told to go to Nineveh um, and offer a prophetic word to them, offer a word of repentance, and Jonah doesn't want to go. And then the whale helps God out, um, as the story goes, um, and Jonah does indeed deliver that message. Um, Some interpreters of scripture say that Jonah is likely satirical, at least partially, because it is so over the top. Jonah gets really angry with God. Um, Jonah is argumentative with God. We need a giant fish to get Jonah to the Ninevites. Um, It's really quite a humorous story um, if you um, read it carefully and are willing to, to just laugh at our dear Jonah, who does go on his prophetic mission, just not willingly. Uh, Micah is another one that I think we're probably more familiar with, um, particularly uh, Micah 6, 8, um, where we are called to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with God. But of course, that's in the context of um, Micah's threats to idolaters and oppressors, to priests who use their work for financial gain, um, and to leaders who hate justice. So when you 
think about that wider context, that uh, line that's normally quoted out of context, uh, gains some weight, um, that we are called to do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. Naum is is a um, prophet that points to the work of performances that I named a while back, one that's often forgotten. Um, It includes an acrostic hymn that is sort of lost in translation, sadly, but there is, um, there's a hymn as well as some poetry um, mixed in with that oracle to Nineveh that includes judgment. Um, it also, this is also has some t- satire in there and some funeral laments. Um, so you can hear the performative pieces there. Habakkuk offers a psalm with musical directions. So again, uh, we see performance popping up um, in the context of this prophecy. Haggai talks about the need to rebuild the temple. So this is a constant uh, challenge for the people of Jerusalem. Um, Do we rebuild the temple? When do we rebuild the temple? Um, And this is a really clear um, call to do that rebuilding. Um, and it's a, it's, it points to a glorious messianic age and rebuilding the temple is part of our preparation for that age. Zechariah also points to the need to rebuild the temple, but does it for slightly different reasons. For Zechariah, this is a a precursor to an eschatological age, so to an age where the kingdom of God is made fully present. If the temple is not rebuilt, Zechariah says, we're not going to have that age come just yet, so let's go ahead and get on that rebuilding And then Malachi um, defends God's justice. This is important in a book or in a series of books where there is a lot of judgment. So Malachi says, yes, our God is a just God and calls for fidelity in our covenant with God or in, in Israel's covenant with God. Now we'll go into some specifics about a few folks. Um, But before that, Again, that was a lot of information thrown out there. Um, What sparks your curiosity hearing about those 17 prophetic books? There's five major prophets and 12 minor. Um, What are you curious about in hearing that? Thank you. I'm curious about the whole process. I mean, how, how how did... A prophet's words get written down. Who mm-hmm. wrote them down? Was there a scribe, a, you know, assigned to him? You know, he's important, so we're going to write down what he says. And this other guy, we don't care about him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> who decides? It's uh, a great question. And this is this is over centuries, yes. right? It's not just today or one day. It's you know, what's, what's the whole process? Do do you have a clue about that? I have a slight clue. Um, I wouldn't say that it's an area of my expertise, um, per se. Um, but it, you're right, it's happening over centuries. So some scholars will say that they think these prophets um, wrote their individual books, particularly in the cases of a shorter book, that might be possible. Um, in the cases of a longer book, I'll talk about this a little bit with Isaiah, There. That's where the work of the disciples of that prophet can be really important, those people who hold that memory um, and pass it on both orally and um, in written form. So it happens through groups of people. It's probably not the prophet getting out their composition book and a Bic pen. Um, it certainly wasn't that, but it's, it's probably nothing like that of a prophet um, just sitting down, writing this all out. It's happening over a course of a significant amount of time. Some of this is recording narratives of those prophets, so likely written by an observer or someone um, that heard the story from that prophet. Um, And because this is such a significant chunk of the Bible, um, we can assume that there's probably a variety of ways that these uh, came into being. Um, But you also asked an important question about how do we decide who's important, who's trustworthy. Again, we look at the possibility of false prophets. Um, 
what's worth recording. And canonizing the Bible is another process that happened over many centuries of people doing exactly that work of saying, um, well, for some of the prophets is, did we see this happen? Did we see this come to light? Um, Can we trust this prophet's visions? when we look at history, when we look at the time of them offering these statements, and then at the course of history. So what prophets whose uh, prophecies came to light, whose predictions of things uh, came to be, are more likely to be recorded, as kind of makes sense. Um, there are also some practical things, uh, depending on how widely written some of this work uh, was. Some of it just gets lost in history, and that's true for um, any part of scripture. Um, so I, I would guess that like much of scripture, um, it's sort of a combination of sources, of people writing directly, of their disciples sharing a word, of witnesses uh, sharing a word, um, and then as also, also of things sort of getting forgotten in history. It's a great question. Um, and I, I don't know a whole lot in particular about the canonization of the prophets and how we ended up with these 17. Um, I'd be curious to learn more about it because, of course, there were many more than 17 um, prophets. So it's a curious thing. <laughs> We'll spend a little time digging into Isaiah, Miriam, and John, as our time allows. Um, Isaiah, we hear a lot about. Um, his, there, there's a lot um, written in the book of Isaiah. His primary focus is on judgment and hope, and he sort of goes through a cycle of talking about judgment and hope throughout the book. Um, and this is one where we know almost certainly that Isaiah wrote part of the book, and over uh, a few generations, the rest of the book was compiled. And scholars have divided it up into three sections um, to s- sort of get at um, the sources of it. Um, and of course, it's not, it's never 100% um, when it comes to these texts that came from centuries ago, um, but scholars um, have a fair amount of clarity that some of this was written by Isaiah and some of it was written much later. Um, so as I said, he goes, he offers a word of judgment and then names, and here's the hope that's represented in that judgment. Um, so I'll, I'll name just one of the iterations of that, um, where he offer, he begins the book offering a, a judgment for rebellion, idolatry, and injustice, and says that God uh, will judge them by sending um, a fire, sending um, people to conquer Israel, to conquer the nation, and that will be a purifying fire. Um, and then after that, there will be uh, justice, peace, and harmony. Uh, So he goes through a couple iterations of offering um, that sort of big event that is going um, to show God's judgment and then the possibility that is represented in it. Um, Isaiah talks a lot about a messianic king, a holy seed that will be left um, after this unquenchable fire. Um, This is a messianic king. This is Part of why we hear of a lot of Isaiah in Advent is because we can really, we can use his prophecy to think about Jesus and how for us, Jesus is that Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. Um, Isaiah uses that word, Emmanuel. Um, A fair amount of poetry, um, stories. There's a tale of two cities um, that, that Isaiah offers as kind of a metaphor for the ways that we live our lives. Um, and the hope that is possible. Jesus also quotes from Isaiah, and I'll I'll name that um, in just a moment, name more about that. Um, So Jesus also sees the way that his ministry um, lines up with what Isaiah has offered. Um, Jesus would have been a pretty well-educated person and would have known his scripture, um, and we see that in his ministry. So I'll offer you just this, this one quote from Isaiah. There's way more that we could say. Um, but this one, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight 
to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So this is offered um, in Isaiah 61, but this is one that Jesus quotes um, when Jesus goes to uh, the temple and is reading from the Torah portion. Um, this is what he reads, um, and some people are outraged by that, um, and it, it seems to some people that perhaps uh, Jesus is thinking too highly of himself at that point in his life and ministry. Um, and some people trust that indeed Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy, um, but an interesting way that um, Jesus pulls from Isaiah and helps us to hear clearly those connections. Miriam is one of those prophets that doesn't get her own book because, well, she was a woman. Um, she is uh, the sister of Moses and Aaron, and for part of the Bible, she's simply known as the sister of the boy in the basket. Um, so this comes in Exodus um, when Pharaoh decrees that male Israelite babies are to be drowned in the Nile. And instead, Moses' mother packs him into a basket, um, we know this story from Sunday school, I bet, um, and puts him in the river where he is discovered by the Pharaoh's daughter. Clever Miriam, young child, it's said that she probably was around eight years old when this happened. Um, Miriam goes to watch and discovers the Pharaoh's daughter picking up baby Moses out of that basket, and Miriam quickly offers up uh, a nursemaid for Moses and goes and gets her mother to offer. So her mo Moses' mother still gets to be with baby Moses um, through Miriam's uh, creativity um, and willingness to just go right up to the Pharaoh's daughter and offer up her mom. Uh, she's also part of the Exodus um, with Moses and with Aaron. She's one of those leaders. And her packing list for the Exodus tells me immediately that she is a prophet. Miriam had a tambourine for what was, could have really looked like a death wish of a journey. Um, she brings out that tambourine after the Israelites have passed through the Red Sea um, and Pharaoh and his army um, are washed away. And she goes with the women who were present there while Moses is with the men who were present there. And Miriam gets out her tambourine and sings with joy. So the fact that she was prepared for joy tells me that she knew what God was up to and that she was ready to offer that um, prophetic performance on the other side. Um, this is part of Miriam's song, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has hurled into the seas. So imagine Miriam with those faithful uh, women gathered together singing and dancing um, in praise to God. Um, it, it's a really holy moment in scripture that can easily get passed right over. Uh, her death causes a lot of grief in the community um, and there are also stories that tell of the Israelites running out of water after her death. Um, and Midrash on these scriptures uh, refer to the well of Miriam, that there was something about Miriam and her life that was offering water to the people. And at her death, um, there was a lack of water, and that's still remembered in Seders today. There's often a cup that um, remembers the well of Miriam. So she's still fondly remembered by the Jewish people, but we Christians often forget about her. So don't forget about Miriam. If you hear nothing else today, don't forget about Miriam. John the Baptist um, is the final prophet I'll talk about today. And I chose this icon of him of his head on a platter, um, partially because it, it's interesting um, and beautiful in its own way, but it's also a reminder to us that the prophetic journey is not for the faint of heart and can get you killed, as is the case with John the Baptist. Um, we he heard about John today in our gospel passage, or you will hear if you're attending worship in a few minutes. Um, John was Jesus's cousin, born of Elizabeth and Zechariah. Um, 
Elizabeth was barren and then experienced a miraculous pregnancy about the same time that Mary did. Um, So you might remember when Gabriel goes to Mary, um, he assures her that anything is possible with God. Let me tell you, your, your sister Elizabeth is now in her sixth month of pregnancy, and she was supposed to be barren. Um, so these things are possible. Um, so Jesus, his cousin is John, and John is also the one who is preparing the way for Jesus and for his ministry. Um, John goes ahead and gets people ready. He offers a word of repentance, um, tells people to prepare and to be baptized. Um, For John, baptism was a sign, a marker of that repentance. Um, It wasn't quite theologically the same as we think about baptism today, um, but was a marker of that. A question in the back? Oh, okay. Um, So uh, John, of course, offered baptism um, and uh, gives people sort of an opportunity to get ready for Jesus. And John, of course, baptizes Jesus himself, and we have that beautiful moment of Jesus coming back out of the waters um, and God speaking from heaven, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. So John is a part of that holy moment that really uh, sparks Jesus's ministry for a lot of people. Um, Jesus is affirmed in his identity and therefore in his ministry and goes forth from that moment, um, I imagine, holding some certainty um, because of his baptism, and John was there and a part of that. Um, Then I'll I'll talk a little bit about how John ended up in this state. Uh, John was imprisoned by Herod Antipas, um, and he was imprisoned because he condemned Herod's marriage to Herodias, Herodias was uh, the divorced wife of John's half-brother, and Herodias was, so was divorced from that half-brother, and John divorced his own wife so that he could marry Herodias, so sort of a complicated familial love triangle, and John said, that's not right, Herod, um, you shouldn't be marrying her, and so John was put in prison. Then this is kind of a I think, gross story, um, sort of perverse. Um, But Herod, um, at a banquet, was so pleased by his stepdaughter's dancing that he offered her anything she could ask for. And at her mother's uh, request, uh, the stepdaughter asks for Herod's head on a platter. Or Yes, thank you. John said, not Herod's. Um, Herod offers her anything, and she offers for John's head on a platter, and indeed it is granted. Um, so sort of a, a gross thing for um, a stepfather to be so pleased by um, his young stepdaughter's dancing that it then results in the death of John. Um, prior to that, Herod had not killed John because he was fearful of John's followers. Um, and it's questionable whether Herod was... Um, maybe prepared to listen to John's message. Um, But then, thus is the end of our dear prophet's life. Questions do you have? Curiosities that this sparked? Yeah, Susan. So I have a comment and Uh then a very brief anecdote. Um, The comment is, it seems like prophets inhabit, whether of ancient, of old, or now, inhabit the world between the way the world could be, should be, and the way it is now. Whereas most of us, we just kind of, well, this is the way it is, and here we are. Mm -hmm. And once in a while, we might have a glimmer. Yes. Prophets are passionate, obsessive about there is something better, and sort of how do they point the way to that. Mm -hmm. So um, the call of Isaiah, which I think we heard yesterday when... Um, he's a man of unclean lips, and, and then God says, and who will I send, and who will go for us? And at that point, Isaiah, despite his feelings of inadequacy, says, here am I, send me. Mm-hmm. So a million years ago at another church, a young man in the congregation 
was asked to be a lay reader that Sunday, and he read that passage, and it just moved him so much that he then stepped up to lead an effort to work with people in Honduras, with tiny communities, and he and his wife got really involved, and it just became this huge thing, and that parish got very involved. And that man, every time he'd hear that passage, he'd always look at me, and it was read at his funeral. I mean, that for him mm. was just a key, who will I send, and who yes. will go for us? Yes. Here I am, send me. That's just that wonderful hooking up of one person with a particular call from God. And um, I think that can happen anytime. Yes. Yes, I, I love that piece of Isaiah's story and that reminder that Isaiah was reluctant and yet experienced a call from God that he knew he had to say, here I am, Lord. Send me. Uh, I'll do it. Um, yeah, he, he was not quite ready for that ministry, and yet it, it happened. Yes, yes. Yeah, and I, I'll also echo what you said about prophets sort of existing in that space between where we are right now and what is possible. Um, and depending on who you ask or how you're reading, sometimes prophets can get a bad rap for all of the judgment that they offer. Um, but the judgment is offered out of a hope for what is possible um, and out of a hope for a future that is in line with the covenant with God. Um, so they're not just offering doom and gloom and judgment because they enjoy it or something. I, I don't know what reason there would be for that um, exactly. But they're doing this because they see possibility that other people don't. So thanks for naming that, Susan. Yes. Um, yeah, uh, Great to hear someone who, who's spent a lot of their life studying these things, that there are just so many perspectives on these prophets. Mm -hmm. uh, say the prophets put out a lot of material, Yes. if you read the Bible, uh, and that it's not always just like a simple prediction, but that there's a lot else going on here, including humor and satire and mm -hmm. uh, being provocative to perhaps to somebody very specific. Yes. Uh, I'm... I, I'm one of these folks who spends a lot of my time not listening to radio anymore. I listen to podcasts. And one of them is every day I get about 20 minutes of the Bible. Uh, and the, the one I, I ended up on has no commentary, no music, no anything. It's just like it just starts reading the Bible. And there's usually about you know, two, two parts of the Old Testament, one of the New Testament. And the thing about this format is that every word in the Bible gets equal time. Mm -hmm. So actually the New Testament isn't, the Gospels are actually a pretty small slice. And I'm working my way through Jeremiah right now, and this guy is crazy. I mean, <laughs> it is just all over the place and really forces some reflection on what, what is actually being said there and what is the mm -hmm. context. It's really, uh, it gives one a lot to think about after, I'll, I'll say, uh, most of my life being in Catholic Church, Episcopal Church, that, you know, if I only listen to what's being said in church, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's the liturgy. It's, it's a small part, and it's really eye-opening to see how much uh, the prophet said and that it had so much to it, a, a larger cultural context and just like a prediction like this is what's going to happen. Yes, yes. It is not as clear as, um, yeah, here's, here's what's going to happen. There's a lot um, in there. Yes, it's some wild stuff. Um, and I appreciate you naming that what we hear in church, uh, it doesn't offer quite that same um, like percentage breakdown that is actually happening in scripture. Um, we naturally focus a lot on the stories of Jesus. That makes sense that we would spend a lot of time in the gospels. But it does mean that a fair amount of the Old Testament um, and the prophets in particular, we either just kind of glaze right over or miss entirely. I was curious to hear more, uh, when Jesus quotes Isaiah, you said there's a lot of uh, 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 folks who are upset. Is, is yes. it the message that he's quoting or his placement as the next in line of the prophets that, that causes the, the frustration? And yeah. just interested to hear how the prophets in the New Testament are being treated uh, is sort of in this line that, that you just described. Yes, it's both. Um, it's both the message that he's offering. Um, it's his confidence that he is the next in line. Um, it's all sorts of different complications with people either saying, Jesus in particular is not the Messiah, or we're not ready for the Messiah because these things haven't happened yet, um, or 
why is this man that we don't know so confident in himself? Um, and part of that passage is that a, a prophet is not welcome in his hometown. Um, so there, there's something to that um, that it worries people. Yeah. Is that the same passage where they say, like, isn't this, isn't this yes. That's right, that's right. Isn't this the carpenter's son? What's happening here? Um, yeah, that's, it's the same passage. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you all for engaging with this. I hope it gives you some food for thought. Next week, we'll talk about modern prophets, um, and my plan is to center that around who some of those prophets are and how we ourselves can both notice those prophets and live prophetic lives ourselves. So I have just a few uh, teasers here for us today. That's William Barber up at the top, um, part of the Poor People's Campaign and Repairs of the Breach. Um, Oscar Romero, who was an archbishop in El Salvador and a martyr of the church. He was actually assassinated while offering the Eucharist, um, which is a powerful witness. And Dolores Huerta, who uh, is an American labor activist. So there's your teaser for next week. Um, Good to be with all of you.